You know, the Christmas story to which we are accustomed is centered around a cute, beautiful little baby born in a precious little manger where cute animals are lying around in comfortable straw that formulated a nice bed for this baby. And wise men bring gifts and people are happy and the baby is perfectly content because after all, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. (laughs) The problem is of course, that our Christmas story is too sanitized. The true story of Christmas that's found in the record of human history in God's word is, is not a sanitized story, but a scandalous one. And the story begins not at a manger scene, but with a picture and a description of a dysfunctional family. Yes, a dysfunctional family where you have abuse, conflict, and rampant dysfunction as a part of normal life. And there's a guy by the name of Matthew who became a follower of Jesus and who later wrote a History, a historical record of the life and the ministry of Jesus and an attempt to convince others that Jesus is the Messiah. And he opens this historical record with a genealogy. And for many of us, the genealogy seems like a set of random names of people that we scarcely know, all in the effort to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah as his lineage is traced from Abraham and David. But what's unique about this genealogy is that Matthew goes out of his way not to present a sanitized family and a sanitized story, but a scandalous one, as he literally highlights the dysfunction in Jesus's family tree. Now that's not something that you and I would do. If you were sharing your family history, if you were talking about your family story and you were broadcasting it to the world, you you would seem to go out of your way to hide the dysfunction, to minimize the embarrassments. But that's not what Matthew does. That's what we would do. not what he does. I'll give you a prime example of how we would operate. I, I, I've taken my family in the past to the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm sure many of you have been. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal tour and opportunity to see what was at one time the largest private residence in the United States. It was George Vanderbilt's cozy second home. <laughs> and, and George and Edith Vanderbilt constructed over many years, what you and I know is the Biltmore Estate. And it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal home and a phenomenal tour. And if you've ever been, you, you know, as I do, that you get more than just a tour of the grounds. As you're at Biltmore, you get a little bit of history of the Vanderbilts. And you learn that George and Edith Vanderbilt had one daughter whose name was Cornelia. 
and little Cornelia was raised there at Biltmore. And when you go through one of the main tours and you come to the end, there's a room there in the house before you leave. It, it, it's got a, a television on the wall because I'm sure George Vanderbilt had wonderful televisions back in the day. And, and, it, and it shows all of these old like clips, like all of these old reels of, of, of little Cornelia at Vanderbilt because much of the tour is really about her and how this beautiful little girl grew up there at, at Biltmore. And you see these, these black and white videos and you see these pictures and these still images of George and Edith and there's little Cornelia. And you get this, this just beautiful picture of this, of this family. And they seem so wonderful and perfect. And then you learn that, that Cornelia Vanderbilt married John Cecil and they had two sons and those two sons were heavily involved in Biltmore. And, and, and you get this just amazing story and this amazing history. You know what you don't get? The dysfunction. Because you know what happened to Cornelia Vanderbilt? After her two sons were born, when they were still very little, she kind of went AWOL. She abandoned her husband, John Cecil. She abandoned her two young boys and she moved to Europe and she never returned to the United States and she, she never returned to the Biltmore. To this day, historians wonder what happened to Cornelia Vanderbilt. To this day, there is rampant speculation about why this, this young mother abandoned her husband and her two boys. You can imagine the trauma of these children as their mother literally leaves them and never returns. And, and wouldn't it be interesting when you're touring the Biltmore estate that you don't get that part of the Vanderbilt's history? In fact, one historian said it this way, documents in the Biltmore archives tell us a bit about Cornelia's childhood and coming of age, but almost nothing of her life after she left Biltmore. She has been an enigma to us, a mystery, the one troubling question mark in an otherwise well-documented history. You know why? That aspect of the Vanderbilt history isn't highlighted at the Biltmore tour because none of us would highlight our dysfunction before a watching world. All of us have shady figures in our family trees. We see them at family reunions. We talk about them with our children and our grandchildren. Oh, we know who you are. All of us have had tragedies. We've experienced poor decisions. Maybe we felt the sting of wrongdoing or abandonment or even abuse. Listen, all of us have dysfunction in our families and in our family tree. We just wouldn't highlight it before a watching world. But I want you to understand as the opening Christmas narrative in Matthew's gospel, he goes out of his way to highlight the dysfunction. He highlights the shady characters and stories. You can't miss it. Now, why is this unique? Well, you have to understand that in ancient times, a person's genealogy was his resume. What Matthew is doing here in this opening section in this genealogy is showing us the resume of Jesus that he does indeed come from Abraham and David and therefore has a right to the throne. He is the Jewish Messiah. But the way Matthew does this is completely uncanny. 
Because in this resume, if you will, he seems to highlight all the things that you would not put in a resume. It would be like you submitting a resume with all of your failures and saying, trust me, I'd be a great hire. But of course, Matthew's doing something here that is unique because Jesus is unique. His ministry unique. And therefore there's a message here, not in the sanitized version of Christmas that our culture seems to perpetuate, but in the scandalous presentation, because that is what is real. And in the real story of Christmas, we find real hope for you and me. And so let's look at this together. Matthew chapter one, I wanna, uh, I wanna show you a few of these names and stories in the resume of Jesus, or as you and I know it, a genealogy of Jesus. I guarantee you when you came to church that you did not think you'd be studying a genealogy. But I, I think you'll be excited to see what Matthew is doing. Check this out. Verse one of Matthew one says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, this is primary now. Matthew's showing us the legitimacy of Jesus's messianic claims that he is a son, a descendant of both Abraham and David. Now, Matthew's gonna show us how we get there. He says, Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac fathered Jacob and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. So far, so good. We got kind of the trifecta here, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so far so good, we're cruising. And then we hit a roadblock here in verse three. And Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now let's just pause there for a moment because we have our first dysfunctional situation. Not that Abraham by any means was perfect, or Isaac or Jacob, but we hit a major roadblock when we get to Judah and Tamar. First of all, ancient genealogies did not include women or mothers. That was completely unusual. And not only does Matthew highlight some of the mothers here in Jesus' genealogy, but he highlights all of the ones that have scandalous stories associated with them. What about Judah and Tamar? Right here at the opening of Jesus's resume, Judah and Tamar. Do you remember the story of Judah and Tamar? Judah had several sons. His first son marries Tamar and he was evil and wicked and he died. And so as was the custom, when the oldest son dies, the second son, the next in line would, would take the older's wife and perpetuate the family line. And so Tamar gets the second son and the second son sins and he dies. She's 0 for 2 on husbands, not her fault. And so Judah goes there and he says, listen, uh, we're 0 for 2 on my first boys, but I, I got a third son. He's not of age yet, but he's coming of age. You just stay here in my house, kind of hang out. And as he gets old enough to marry, then you can marry him. Now, remember, as a woman, being childless and being a widow in this culture is cause for shame. And, and so Tamar's in a precarious situation, but she's waiting. In the meantime, Judah's wife dies. He becomes a widower. And Tamar becomes a scheming woman who out of fear of childlessness and neglect 
takes matters into her own hands. And so one day Judah is traveling and Tamar learns of where he's going and she goes ahead of him and she picks up a little spot there on the, on the way and, and Judah stops and, and she approaches him and she's dressed like a prostitute. And Judah, who doesn't have a wife at this point, obviously is compromising his character as well. And he goes in to her, not knowing that it's Tamar, thinking it's just a cult prostitute. And, and after everything is over and done with, she asks for payment. And he, he says, yes, I, I'll give you a goat, <laughs> which apparently was common currency back then. She says, well, no, I'm not waiting on something to be delivered. An IOU is not how I roll. I'll need some collateral. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my signet ring here and my staff, and you keep it as collateral. When I come back through, I'll, I'll bring the payment. She says, fine. A few days later, Judah comes back through. She's nowhere to be found. He asked a few people in that area, hey, have you seen this cult prostitute that's around? And they're like, no, we don't know of anyone like that here. He's like, well, okay, well. All right, keeps going, goes back home. A few months later, some of Judah's friends or family come to him and they say, Judah, we've got some news for you. Are you sitting down? Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been playing the role of a prostitute and she's pregnant out of wedlock. And Judah is furious, so much so that he's demanding her life. She will die for this, for this embarrassment to our family, for this act of humiliation, for the fact that she has disgraced our family name. And so with others there, he, he sends for Tamar and she comes in and you can just see the exchange. Who got you pregnant? And she says, the man that owns this staff in this ring. Now that'll break up your Christmas dinner in a hurry. <laughs> you think you got family problems at Christmas time when everybody comes over. That will wreck your family. And out of that horrific relationship, sons are born. And where do you find them? in the genealogy of Jesus. Did Matthew have to mention Tamar? No. <laughs> I think we know the story, Matthew. <laughs> Everything looks good, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Well, let's keep going. Look at what happens next here. Perez and fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram. By the way, if you are having a baby soon. I commend these names to you. Aram fathered Aminadab. That's another winner right there. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Remember Rahab? When we see Rahab in heaven one day, we're gonna say, you're Rahab, the woman from the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of Rahab? Joshua and Caleb and the Israeli spies were spotted, so they hide in a hotel of prostitution. Rahab was a prostitute. 
they asked her to hide them and she actually agreed to do it at the risk of her own life. She expressed in that moment more faith in the God of Israel than she did fear of her own king. May I remind you that faith is often expressed imperfectly at times, but it was expressed by Rahab nonetheless. And the Lord honored that. The spies were protected and Rahab was commended. But did any of us expect that Salmon would father Boaz by Rahab the prostitute? I mean, listen, we're talking about names. None of us name our daughters Rahab. How much would you have to hate your child to name her Rahab? <laughs> right? But here she is in the resume of Jesus. Let's keep going. The very next line, this Boaz, by the way, had a son named Obed and Obed's mother was Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Say, why is that a big deal? Well, the Moabites came from a despicable beginning. They come from a man by the name of Lot. Lot, who was a relative of Abraham. Lot, who made his residence in the city of Sodom. Lot, who didn't just make his residence there, but Lot, who seemed to sit on the city council, who was grieved at the destruction of the city. And after, by God's grace, he left, he left with his daughters. And on their journey, his daughters fear that they will be barren and unable to marry in a foreign land. And so they get their father drunk and they both have relations with him. And out of that incestuous relationship circle, two sons are born who become the fathers of the Ammonites and the Moabites, people with a despicable beginning. They become a generation of people that despised Israel. There was constant enmity between Israel and the Ammonites and the Moabites. God said to his own people that the Moabites could not enter into the assembly down to the 10th generation. There was tremendous conflict. And yet by the grace of God, he raises up Ruth who after her own set of tragic circumstances, pledges her life to the God of Israel and says to her mother-in-law Naomi, remember this, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And wouldn't you know that through the grace and the mercy of God, this Ruth, this Moabite becomes a wife and a mother in Israel. And she brings forth a son who brings forth a son who brings forth a son. And wouldn't you know it, this is what Matthew is highlighting for us, look at this. And, and you have Ruth and Obed who fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered the great King David. Yes, David's great grandmother was a Moabite. <laughs> We're only six verses into this genealogy. We don't have time to go through the rest of it. Do you see the dysfunction? This is radically different than the Christmas story we're accustomed to in our culture with wonderful lights and stories and, oh, what a beautiful little feeding trough that the king of the world was laid in. <laughs> no, 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 no. Put yourself back in the first century. Take yourself out of the bubble. 
and put yourself into the story. And what you will find is a resume for the Messiah that is completely unlike any other ancient resume. A genealogy completely unlike any other genealogy. Listen, we don't have time to go through all of these names. But let me just tell you, it's not just the women in the story that are shady, it's also the men. Rehoboam was evil, Joram evil, Ahaz evil, Manasseh and Ammon incredibly evil. There are issues and problems throughout this entire genealogy. But sure enough, you get to Joseph and Mary who give birth to Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the one that comes in the lineage of Abraham and David. Yes, he is legitimately the Messiah. He's proven to be the Messiah. But when you look at his record, you see nothing but dysfunction. You see a messed up people. You, you see chaos and abuse and, and, and horrific decisions and embarrassment and things that frankly you and I would never want broadcast before a watching world. And so why does Matthew do it? Why does the Christmas story literally begin with this genealogy? Why does the New Testament open with this? Why is this the introduction to Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because ultimately the Christmas story is a message of hope whereby, listen to me very, very carefully, we celebrate a God that brings deliverance out of our dysfunction. This is the hope of Christmas. We have a God who brings deliverance out of our dysfunction. That's why Matthew's not worried about highlighting these, these acts and these people of dysfunction. That's why Matthew is opening with honesty and transparency. He, he's naming people that normally would not be named. He seems to go out of his way to highlight this dysfunction. By the way, listen, when we, when we get to David, you go down to the end of verse six, what do you get? You, you get David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Do you realize she had a name? Her name was Bathsheba. Matthew won't mention her by name. Listen, all throughout this story, you see just dysfunction and sin and rebellion, but yet what do you find? You find a God who is faithful to bring a deliverer and deliverance out of our dysfunction. And can I give you a word of hope today? What God did for Israel, he will do for you. What God did for Jesus' family, he will do for your family because God is in the business of bringing deliverance out of our dysfunction. That's what he does. And that's what this Christmas season is all about. Can I give you just a few quick takeaways here? If we were to broaden the, the, the narrative and look at kind of the big picture history here of what's happening with the life and ministry of Jesus and his family, can I just give you a few takeaways? First of all, listen, I wanna remind you that our great God is faithful to his plans, his purposes, and his people. What is Matthew highlighting here? Yes, he's highlighting, it seems, this dysfunction. He's highlighting all these people who are messed up in these horrific situations. But of course, he's not glorifying it. But what he is doing is reminding us that we have a savior and a salvation that comes from the sovereign plan and purpose of our God. And no human failure has or ever will thwart the plan and the purposes of our God. And he is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his people, no matter how messed up we may be. Therefore, our hope for all eternity is not set in our obedience. It's not set in our actions, our wisdom, or our works. You know what our hope is set in? The sovereign plan and purpose of our God who will always bring his plans to pass. 
and the days where you have doubts and the days where you have skepticism and the days when you're weary and you're frustrated, especially in this culture and all that we're dealing with and the fatigue and everything that we're facing going through the end of the year. Let me tell you something. We have a God who is faithful to us. You say, but you know how I've messed up. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you've messed up, but I got a name of names of people here that I'd love to put your story against. And I can provide evidence that our God is faithful to his people even when they mess up. And I promise you, God will be faithful to you. Our God is faithful to his plans, his purposes, and his people. Do you realize that David's act with Bathsheba, or as Matthew says, Uriah's wife, threatened his kingdom, but yet God still brought fulfillment? Do you realize all these wicked kings of Israel could not thwart the plan of God? but he used them as a means of fulfilling his plan. Do you realize even the exile that Israel went through served a greater purpose, which no one could know at the time? Listen, nobody looks at Israel and their history and says, oh yeah, no wonder God used them. You know what we say? We look at Israel and we see, wow, what a merciful, gracious, faithful God. And that's what people ought to say when they look at you and me. Not, oh man, no wonder God's using that guy or that gal. No, 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 no. You know what I hope people say and look at my life? Yep. There is a merciful, merciful, gracious God. <laughs> you know, if God can use that guy, he can use anybody. Listen, that is our story. That's all of our stories. That God uses us and God is faithful to us in spite of us. And that is our confidence and our hope. Our God is faithful to his plans, his purposes, and his people. Secondly, I want you to see here, even in the genealogy that Jesus, this Christmas story, the opening of it, that Jesus came to save us by becoming one of us. This is what makes Christianity unique. Maybe you're watching us online or at home or wherever you're traveling. Maybe you're here in the room for the first time and maybe you're a little bit skeptical about this Christianity. May I just remind you that Christianity is rooted in human history and it is unique in the history of the world. Only the message of Christianity says that God at his own expense comes to us. Every other major world religion says we have to do something to get to God. You know what the message of Christianity is? No, 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 we can't do enough to get to God. Just look at our history here. But, but praise the Lord, we have a God in his grace and mercy who comes to us. And how does he come to us? He comes to us in the person of his son who wrapped himself in human flesh, who grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And let me give you a little spoiler for where we're headed in future weeks. And who probably cried as a baby. <gasps> you know how I know that? Because I've seen four children born. You see, the miracle of the incarnation is not that Jesus came as some super baby who never cried or experienced emotions or grew in wisdom or in stature or who had some incredible looks, was the Tom Cruise of the first century. You know what, what the gospel writers say? No, he was average in appearance. You, you know what the miracle of the incarnation is? That, that Jesus forsook all of his heavenly powers and privileges to come and to live like you and me. And only the message of Christianity contains that hope because only Jesus has proven to be the son of God and the savior of the world. This is how much God loves you. That he sent his only begotten son into this world 
in the history of a dysfunctional family to prove to you that he loves you because this Jesus who was born lived a perfect life and he died on a Roman cross in your place and mine and he rose from the dead and he accomplished all that you and I and our descendants could not. And that gets us to our final takeaway. Listen, God's mercy is the ultimate story of human history. Say, what is human history about? I mean, let's look back at all these weirdos and let's look back at all of these dysfunctional situations. Let's look back at all of these messed up. What do we see? We see a record of God's mercy and his faithfulness. And the story of human history and the story of your family and my family is ultimately a story of God's mercy. The fact that our sin, praise the Lord, is not greater than God's salvation. That's what we celebrate this time of year, right? That we can have the hope of eternal life. That when we acknowledge and we just recognize and we own our dysfunction, we own our messed up past and we own the fact that we are imperfect people, okay? And, and we just submit to what God has done for us. And we, we believe that, that Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life and he died on the cross for our sins. And he, he, he rose from the dead and he appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And, 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 and we ask him to come into our lives and to save us. Guess what he does? And God's mercy becomes the foundation of our stories. As one biblical writer said years ago, I am who I am because of the grace of God. God's mercy is the ultimate story of human history. That's why the great Martin Luther, the reformer said this, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Listen, I don't know what the story of your life is, your family, your history, but I know this. There's a God whose mercy can cover it all.